Good morning. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll finish up that chapter that we began last week. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. If you have one of the blue Bibles, uh, it's on page 976. Hear now the word of God. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Oh, Lord, our God, thank you. Thank you that you have not forsaken your people. And that once again, you come to us this morning to remind us of what is real. Lord, I pray that you would give your people eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit would say to your church today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are partway through a three-part series on reality. What has really Uh, taken place in the past, what is taking place in the present, and what is really going to take place in the future. The past, the present, and the future. And last week we saw the reality of things that have already taken place. Today we'll talk about our present reality, and next week we'll finish up with the future. The reality is past, present, and future are all always intertwined. You've probably heard the saying, if we don't know and understand our history, then we are surely doomed to repeat it. Or the saying, if you don't know where you've been, then how in the world can you know where you're going? The past, the present, and the future are all connected We exist in the here and now, but that existence is impacted by the already and the not yet. 
And so the Apostle Paul has just finished his prayer of doxology in verse 14 that we talked about last week. All of that that he has just mentioned to the praise of God's glory. And now he turns to a prayer for the believers in Ephesus. And he says, for this reason, referring back to everything up to that point that he has said is absolutely true about believers. Not just those in Ephesus way back then, but it's true for all believers for all time. The truth that we have been blessed and chosen and predestined and adopted as sons and redeemed and forgiven and given an inheritance and sealed and made God's own treasured possession in Christ, in Him. You remember we talked about that little phrase that's repeated over and over throughout the book of Ephesians. It's all based on being in Christ. If you had asked a first century believer in Jesus Christ, what are you? They never would have said, I'm a Roman who follows Jesus. Or I'm a, I'm a Jewish follower of Jesus Christ. What they always would have said is, I am an in Christ one. They kept calling themselves that up until the time in Antioch when they finally merged those words together in Christ one into this term that we use so readily today, Christian. And that's what we are in Christ ones. And so because of all those things that were listed in verses 3 through 14 that I just read that we talked about last week that God has already done for the in Christ ones, the Apostle Paul gives thanks here in these verses. And he also gives thanks because he's heard some news about the believers in Ephesus. News that lets him know that Christ is truly at work in that local church. First of all, in verse 15, he has heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul had already, years before, warned the Ephesians that not everyone in the church would necessarily be in the faith. Back in Acts chapter 20, he warned there that there would come a time when the world would get its way into the church. He told the Ephesian elders that men would arise within their own church, quote, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. If you are a part of a local church, then there is faith among you today. But the key question is not, are you in the midst of a local church? The key question is whether there is faith in you. Have you entered into the riches of the blessings of Christ Jesus? Or are you just an outsider looking in? And there's a litmus test here given to us in, in these verses by the Apostle Paul. A litmus test to know whether you are an in Christ one. And the litmus test is simply 
your love for other Christians. Your love for other Christians. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. He gives thanks. It's easy for me to, to understand that, that Christians are called to love. And we typically think of loving those that are, that are struggling, loving those that are down and out, loving others out there somewhere. <laughs> But, you know, the rubber meets the road when we talk about how we love one another. Sometimes it's hardest to love Christians, fellow people who are in Christ. Like brothers and sisters sometimes. It's hard to love each other. We get on each other's nerves. We offend one another. But it's one of the signs of a true Christian that he loves all other Christians. It's a sign because, frankly, Christians can be unlovable. We tend to devour each other rather than care for one another sometimes. We look down upon one another's faith. We, we pray for others, but we forget to pray for each other in here. Or we pray just blanket general prayers for each other. And I hope that we will learn something from the way the Apostle Paul prays for all believers here in these simple verses. Christians can be unlovable. God didn't choose the most lovable people to be His very own. He didn't choose you because of your great qualities. He chose you freely. And without cause, out of His grace. When you come to Christ through a heart of faith and repentance, and when you recognize how much God has loved you, then your only real response is to begin to love other believers. Even those that are hard to love. Well, having seen the evidence of their faith and their love here in these verses the Apostle Paul proceeds to pray in verse 17. And his prayer for them is that they might know something incredible. Something that our finite brains can hardly begin to grasp. He prays that they might have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in their knowledge of God. This is the same prayer that Moses prayed for himself back in Exodus chapter 33. God was giving a special blessing to Moses and Moses asked of the Lord, Oh Lord, show me your glory. And Paul prays the same thing here for the Ephesian believers and for us. That just as Moses saw the glory of God, that same Father of glory, it tells us here, might show Himself to us for one reason and one reason only, that we might know Him. That's the heart of it all. From, the, from before the foundations of the world, God's purpose is to create a people for Himself that we might 
know Him, that we might be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, not seeing Him with our physical eyes, but seeing Him with the eyes of our hearts. Now, this is not just a plea to, oh, get all touchy-feely, fuzzy, oh, about God. Oh, isn't He great? Oh, I feel so good when I talk about God. That's not what it's talking about. Every time the Scripture talks about the heart of man, it's talking about our minds, our wills, our affections. And here the Apostle Paul is praying that the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our mind, our wills, and our affections might be opened up to three very important things. The first of which he prays in verse 18, that the Lord would enlighten the eyes of your heart to know the hope of your calling. That we might know the hope of our calling. To realize that from the foundation of the world, God has invested our lives with His purpose. He's given us a calling and eternally significant meaning to our lives. There are a lot of people who who live their entire lives not knowing what they're here for. Not really. Not knowing if it all means anything at all. And here's Paul at the outset saying, Lord, I want these Christian believers to have their eyes so open that they understand that you have invested their life with an eternally significant meaning. Their very calling gives them hope, O Lord, in this chaotic, fractured, sin-darkened world. Hope has been defined as a confident expectation. We hear about hope in Scripture. We know that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But what Paul's talking about here to us, what God is talking to about us about in these verses, is not just a hope in having hope. The point here is that we have something in which to hope. Someone in which to hope. We have a hope into which we have been called. And to what have we been called? To be in Christ. Isaiah 40, we read in our uh, words of approach that we talked about this morning, the words of comfort, comfort my people. And Isaiah 40 later on goes on to say, those who hope in the Lord are the ones who will renew their strength. And if you turn to Job chapter 19, you would read about how Job in the midst of all of his misery and suffering and devastation says, I know, I don't know much in the midst of all this chaos. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, He will stand upon the earth and I will see Him with my very own eyes. Though my body has decayed and gone to dust, I will yet see Him as He is. Because Jesus is eternal life, we have been granted eternal life 
in Him. Because He is righteous, we've been declared to be righteous by the judge of all men. Because He is the Son of God, we've been adopted into God's family as His very own beloved children. And because He, as the Son of God, is the heir to the kingdom of heaven, we too have become co-heirs with Christ, Scripture tells us. God deals with us on the basis of what He has made us to be already in Christ. He sees us today to be what we are right now in Christ. And the Lord will deal with us on the basis of the future. He deals with us and will continue to deal with us on the basis of what He has called us to become. The Scriptures teach us that God called an old childless couple long past childbearing years to bear forth a son of promise. And He gave the man the name of Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And the Scriptures teach us that the Lord called to a lying trickster of a shepherd named Jacob, and he gave him the title Israel, one who wrestles with God. And he called to Simon, unstable as the shifting sand, and named him Peter. Jesus said, because he's the rock on whom I will build my church. And he calls you with all your sin and your failings and your your doubts and mistakes, and He calls you saint. You are a saint in Christ, one set apart as a holy vessel for the Master's special purpose. The Lord God says to His people, Be holy, for I am holy. We are children of God. And now we are to live as befits a child of the King. Furthermore, we also have God's promise that He will bring forth the very character of Christ in us, in our lives. And we long for that, don't we? It's God's work for you. It's God's work to you. It's God's work in you. Well, the Apostle Paul also prays here that we might know the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. We talked about last week that indeed God has granted us a rich inheritance in Jesus Christ. But did you read the text carefully here? The text says that we might know not only the hope to which He's called you, but the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. We have an inheritance that God gives us in Christ. But the text clearly tells us here that we are also 
God's very own inheritance. We are his treasured possession, not because we are so wonderful, not because we get it right, but because of what he is making us to become. He gives us another day of life that we might grow just a bit more before we see him face to face. And we are called and made to become the church. Pure and holy like a spotless bride. We won't experience the complete fullness of this. This thing that is yet to come. The fullness of it. Until God's kingdom comes in all its glory. But we do have foretastes of it now. Last week we heard about a down payment that God made to us, guaranteeing us our inheritance. It's the Holy Spirit Himself that is the down payment of that full and future glory that right now, today, we can only imagine. Well, how does a believer get from the beginning to the end? How does he get from knowing the purpose of his life to finding the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises in his life. Well, the text tells us here the third thing that the Apostle Paul prays for. We need God's power. And the Apostle Paul prays that our eyes would be enlightened, that we might know the surpassing greatness of God's power. The surpassing greatness of God's power. And all the rest of this passage in chapter 1 is meant to convince us of the surpassing greatness of God's power to us in Jesus Christ. He prays for that to be real to us. And then he shows us, he reminds us of the evidences of God's power because he, he knows in our heart of hearts when we run into trials and difficulties and when we see the sin of our own hearts, we will begin to question the adequacy of God's power to deal with those trials, to deal with our sins, to get us from the beginning to the end. And we need to know when we go to the Lord in prayer that those prayers are going to be not just listened to, but responded to, and that God will answer our prayers in ways that are far beyond what we could ever ask for or imagine. And when we walk with the Lord as He's called us to do, we need to know that He really has the power to keep us from stumbling. That when we are struggling, that He has the power to conquer those plaguing sins that we still see in our hearts. We need to know the greatness of God's power as we wrestle with all those very real things going on in our lives in the here and now. The battle may rage on, but God keeps telling us over and over again, the victory has already been won. Those evidences of God's power we read about here in the final verses of this chapter about Christ's resurrection, about Christ's majesty, about His victory. Those are, are proofs to us that God's power is real and effectual 
But why does he remind us of it here, now? Why does he give evidences at all of his power? All of this is geared, it tells us here in the text, for the sake of the church. This rule over all things that Christ has been, been granted is for the benefit of those he loves, of those who love him, of his people, of those who trust in him, for the benefit of his church. And that same power is at work in you, which raised Jesus from the dead, which caused him to be set at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, which has been granted him as the ruler over everything. Why? For the sake of his people. The ascension of Jesus Christ was so important. We talk a lot about the crucifixion and the resurrection, but the fact that he ascended to the right hand of the Father proves something to us. It declares that the atonement for our sins is done. It is finished. It is complete. It declares to us that His power is real and and effectual. It's working. And that His love is everlasting. Scripture tells us His mercies know no end. His loving kindnesses know no end. Well, overall, God's purpose is to grow us up in Christ, to make us more mature as we walk with Him day in and day out. That's His purpose for you. And God refuses, cannot be thwarted in that purpose. Death could not stop Jesus from being resurrected. All the principalities and powers of this world and its present rulers of darkness could not stop him from being exalted to the right hand of God the Father. That place of power and absolute rule. And nothing will stand before him when He comes again in power and glory. That same power is at work in us who believe in the already and the not yet of our lives. These are the last days, Scripture tells us. We don't know the day or the hour and Christ is going to come again, but I can tell you what I do know, what we all know absolutely is true in regard to that, is that we are 2,000 years closer to that day than the Apostle Paul was. These are the last days. Let's make them count. Let's show those around us that the life-changing reality of God's redeeming love for us in Jesus Christ is real. Let's show those around us that His resurrection is real. That His sovereign rule is true and absolute. And that the victory truly is ours in Jesus Christ our Lord. To Him be the glory now and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, by Your Spirit, 
enlighten our eyes this morning so that we would see your surpassing greatness, know the reality of your power at work in our lives, that we would live in accordance with it as you conform us to the image of your Son. Oh God, help us be in Christ once. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.